Tom Gary of Telegraph Sport. I sat an interview for the Telegraph. It was for the internship for six months. It went to Richard Amofa, but I was flattered to uh, be in with a chance of uh, working for the Telegraph because I know the people, Jason Burt, Jim White, Johnny Liu, as was, and then the, the great sporting department. What's it been like taking over a job in a remote access world? Yes, I suppose that's the only um, shame of my time there so far is because of coronavirus, I've, I've hardly met anybody I, that I work with. Um, but that's the same, I guess, for anybody in a new job at the moment. The team have been absolutely lovely, all extremely supportive. I've been a bit overwhelmed by the by the generous support from from uh, somebody that you mentioned there, um, uh, Jason Burt, Sam, Sam Wallace, Luke Edwards, um, yeah, Jim White. I could, I, I'm missing off. I'm missing off many people here because I'm. I probably haven't got time to mention everybody, but all of these great writers that I've looked up to for years have, have been extremely supportive, and it's so nice to speak to heroes on the phone and, and, and find out that they're actually they're incredibly nice as well. as. It's a very nice office in Victoria. Yes, uh, it's a huge office. I think they told me it was one of the largest the largest office spaces in the world. Um, and um, I've, only, I've only been, because of coronavirus, I've only been into collecting equipment, so... I'm not, uh, but no, it's, it's very lucky to be able to work from home. I really enjoy that side of working because, well, walk the dog. And oh, um, what kind of dog? Spend, uh, we have a, a, a greyhound who has been with us for for around a year. His name's Blake. He was a he used to be a racing greyhound, but yeah. I think we, we'd actually been on a waiting list with the Dogs Trust for for a greyhound, my my other half and I, um, for a little while. But I think when the when it came around to the start of the pandemic. Um, for various reasons, lots of lots of greyhounds um, uh, training uh, sites were closed, or for various other things. So a lot, the dog trust ended up with a lot of greyhounds around twelve months ago, and we were very lucky to to, to adopt one of them. So yeah, Blake's been lovely, and uh, he's a bit of a couch potato. But um, goodness me, he goes like the clappers when uh, when he goes for a run. And uh, no, he's a real real sweetie. And uh, no, so it's nice to work from home and be able to to walk him uh, in the morning and that sort of thing. So um, and where is yeah, home? Uh, for the time being, home is in Bristol, but um, we'll, we'll shortly be moving up to, to Manchester, actually, because my, my other half uh, is relocating for, for a new job there. So we're really excited about that. And um, I suppose in a strange way, that timing uh, has coincided completely coincidentally with Bristol City's relegation from the WSL. So yep. I suppose the usefulness of being in Bristol um, was lessening. So um, I will, from a work point of view, will be a lot closer to Man City women and Man United women and Everton and Leicester, who just been promoted, and various other teams. So, and a lot of my colleagues um, live in London, who are close to the London WSL club. So, it'll be good to have a, a base up there, so so close to some of those uh, more northern sides. And um, who, who, particularly, also next year, we're expecting a really big year from Everton as well. So, I think um, it'll be a, a cracking place to live and, and, and get around to lots of the games up there. I'd hope so. And you'll have to get Chris Bascom, uh, Scouser Chris Bascom. Uh, who works with Jamie Carragher often. I had him in to the library. But BBC Sport, were you working in London, Bristol or Manchester? I was working in Bristol there as as part of the regional uh, sports online team. Uh, Five really happy years there. Absolutely fantastic team. Essentially, without uh, going into too much detail, I suppose, it's sort of... uh, Two different sections of the uh, all parts of the BBC online. So you'll have your, kind of like your network head offices, which for news is in London and the sport is in Salford, and then also the regional part of it. So, and I was one of the regional sports teams. So I was the West Country based 
person uh, and fortunate to lead on, on women's football at the same time. There were 10 of us dotted around the country, one, one online sports writer kind of for every regional TV centre, if you follow me. So uh, depending on where you are around here, it's, it's, it's points west. And, and, and so I was in that office, which and the team are lovely, had a great time there. Uh, my first job, my first contract for them, after some freelancing, my first contract for them was as a women's Super League reporter for the 2015 season. So it's always been a bit of a women's football focus for me. And um, yeah, I had a really good time at the, at the BBC. Can't can't recommend uh, working there enough, really. So uh, about five, we're about five months on, I think six months on. But they are now uh, this week, I think, interviewing for a replacement for me, which is always interesting to sort of see. <laughs> so, yeah, I wish whoever that is the best of luck. Uh, but yeah, it's a great team you know, if I'd done my research properly and just typed in Tom Gary BBC Sport, I would have seen your byline from September on Women's Super League, foreign stars raise barb, but will English youngsters suffer? But I uh, didn't do my homework properly. Uh, it's a very good piece as well. So, uh, yes, yeah, so you've moved on from the BBC. I can't work for the state. Uh, my partner's in the NHS. I think I would just tear my hair out if I was working for the BBC, which today, May 20th, is in the news again because of the Martin Bashir Panorama Diana nonsense. But we don't have time for that. Karen Carney, is she not better in print than she is on air? Oh, goodness. Um, I guess my answer will be slightly biased here because uh, as a, growing up from a family of Birmingham City supporters, oh, okay. uh, Karen, Karen Carney's a bit, of a, a bit of a hero. I have to confess to being a real radio listener rather than a hugely frequent watcher of, of TV, although, of course, we all watch football on TV. Um, but I, I mainly, as, a, as you're travelling around the country to cover matches, you see, you spend a lot of your time listening to football on the radio uh, in the car, because particularly from Bristol, uh, the Northern Games are quite, it's a six-hour round trip. So lots of listening to radio. And I think on the radio, Karen Carney is uh, among the best the best pundits out there. Um, listening to her as a, an, on co-commentary, and he, someone who really, really understands the understands the intrinsic parts of the the game and the tactics and, and what it's like to be in so many different situations. And that I think she articulates that absolutely brilliantly. I would say she's one, one of the real and the pundits uh, really vary in their kind of. Some have got so many different styles. Um, sometimes it's nice to hear some who are just there to add the kind of passion and, and enthusiasm and. And, and banter, but, but with Karen, it's really refreshing to hear such uh, such expert knowledge of of so many different things in part of the game. I, I was very fortunate to be at her at the press conference in in France at the Women's World Cup uh, third place Perth, where she yeah, announced she her retirement. Yeah, she's been at so many press conferences, but that one really stood out because I've never been in a press conference before where somebody's passion for their country was so. So abundantly clear, goodness. I mean, uh, she was asked the question, uh, I think it was asked by uh, uh, Midlands, excellent Midlands journalist, uh, football journalist Neil Moxley. I think he asked the question, which was, what will you miss the most about playing for England? And you could just see the tears just starting to come down Karen Carney's face as she, and she choked up as she said the words, missing the anthem, she would miss most singing the anthem. And the whole room just sort of had, uh, you could just, everyone was, hugely emotional because it was clearly so emotional to her. it was really genuine and I know footballers sports stars might often say how about their national pride and playing for the country but um, it was so it was so honest and real it was um, a very very emotional um, press conference um, somebody who yeah clearly 
was so immensely proud to play for England. So uh, that really stood out, and uh, yeah, wish her all the very best in her. In her, in her, I think I, I guess she's doing good things on punditry, but I think it's a bit of a loss for for the game. She's not going to be going into coaching. Yeah, she's brilliant. Tricky, tricky winger. Uh, I did see her play, uh, Kaz, as she's known, and it's alleged she was she started as a teenager, and like Alex Scott and Kelly Smith and Rachel Brown and Sue Smith, is kind of women's football one point naught, or or maybe two point naught if we're now in the third age. But I imagine you've come across Alex and Sue and Rachel and and that lot. Do you have a particular favourite? Or are they all your favourites? Oh, goodness. Um, Kaz aside, I, obviously. I, I think as a pundit, I think Rachel Brown-Finnis is absolutely excellent um, as a pundit in terms of art- articulating some yeah some of the more complicated things. I think she does that really, really well. Goodness me, the friendliest face you'll ever see at a football ground is, is Sue Smith. I actually can't remember ever saying I'm not smiling when she's arriving at a football ground. Sue's extraordinarily friendly. And what you find with the vast majority of the ex-England players um, particularly from Sue Smith's generation is they're such incredibly normal friendly family people because they've not they've never had the, the riches of uh, the men's game and the millions they've all just earned you know modest livings and are just normal normal family people and that's actually really nice you can't label all, all men's um, Premier League stars by the same you can't, can't tie them all with no, the, the same majority, brush like that, Henry Winter calls it the washbag generation I mean there are the Rashford yeah. I call it the Kaepernickers people who do put social responsibility, uh, if not first, then second. Um, but yeah, they all seem very grounded. And yet, the, the kids coming through, I call them kids. Lucy Bronze isn't a kid. Frank Kirby isn't a kid. Uh, Mido and um, Steph Horton, whose partner Stephen Darby you may have met once upon a time or at a dinner. I haven't met Stephen Darby, but I've actually heard a lot about him. But yes, yeah, Steph, I've interviewed uh, many times and she's, again, another one who's extremely friendly. The one thing we are starting to see now with some of the players coming through uh, is they're the first generation. The WSL players now who are in their early 20s are the first young generation to have come through with from media training. And uh, I'm start, starting to sense from some of them for the first time a little bit of nerves and, and anxiety towards the media as there are more and more journalists turning up. I think go back five years and you had a lot more one-on-one interviews after match, you know, mix and after a match. If you're one of any two journalists there, it's a lot easier to have a really relaxed conversation with a player. Um, but now we're getting, you know, maybe you might have 20 people, not obviously before coronavirus, but you might have 20 people sticking a microphone in front of you. Um, oh, sorry, that's, that's ah, Blake, Blake the dog. Um, at the postman. There, we're starting to see a change. Uh, and a lot of the clubs, um, the big clubs in particular, uh, are clearly putting the players through through quite extensive media training in terms of their answers. We're, we're moving towards that kind of, We'll take it one game at a time. Oh, no. Controversial sort of stuff. Not necessarily a bad thing. There are pros and cons to that. But um, I think as a as a journalist, you got you probably got better quotes five years ago when um, when there were fewer fewer press officers. But that's okay. That's no, send Alex pressure. Scott in. Give Scotty the chance. Yeah. She'll she'll knock him down, and then you can come in afterwards for the print. <laughs> Uh, that's that's the future. Um, I had uh, two great experiences at Wembley. Danielle Carter's goal uh, for Arsenal. Uh, in that particular final, was it against Notts County, 2016? I think it was. Oh, that was against uh, against Chelsea. Chelsea, uh, Notts County. Uh, yeah, it was a year before. Okay. Yeah, but Arsenal. I mean, that was a game Arsenal weren't expected to win actually, and and uh, we still got a masterclass for a late cameo in a, a career from from Kelly Smith. So yeah, yes. it was a, a memorable day. 
Yeah, and Chelsea were hopeless that day. But um, the next year, Man City against Birmingham City. And it was lovely to sit in the in the box and just watch City do their thing. Um, and then after the game, talking about mix zones, to stick a dictaphone in front of Carly Lloyd did feel a little surreal. And Izzy Christensen, who's one of my favourite players and is turning into a bit of a pundit herself... Just the and the atmosphere of the the press conference was great. Everyone seemed friendly. You were probably there. You were in that room, probably. I was for the Arsenal Chelsea final of 2016. In fact, the 2017 uh, final, the Birmingham Man City. I was uh, following from the office, doing a live text instead. But the others, all the others in the Wembley era, I've been fortunate to be at. So that's been a real, mm-hmm. real privilege. I mean, yeah. So the Carly Lloyd final, as I guess I'm calling it. Uh, Stands out because Man City raced into such a, a big early lead. It was sort of over as a contest um, before it had really begun. But uh, what a big superstar that they signed there. And, and she was only there for a month or two and, and won the FA Cup. So, uh, yeah, she was destined to score at Wembley, wasn't she? Carly Lloyd. And I bet Spurs were hoping Alex Morgan would do a similar thing. The main reaction I had when Alex came in was they're obviously trying to build bridges between the land of Gridiron and the future Tanningham Hotspurs which I keep saying, I don't know if it annoys listeners, but um, Alex Morgan Hardy played, then she had a kid, or she'd had a kid and then she started playing and then she got injured, right? Oh, yes, well, she'd actually given birth um, to her first child uh, in uh, around this time last year, in May, early May uh, 2020. Um, so her move to Spurs was, a, was, I think, primarily an opportunity to build up fitness because, of course, the American season... Oh, it's an um, season yeah. It was altered a bit by the pandemic as well, but essentially there would be no no significant games uh, in the US for clubs until the spring. So it was a really good chance for her to just build up that fitness slowly. And and that and um, I guess as, 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 as blokes, we probably have no idea how, how how hard or easy it would be to come back to full fitness. Uh, you know, less than six months after uh, giving birth, but um, was not too surprised by the relatively low-key kind of nature of her uh, she scored a couple of goals and I think I guess what she more did for Spurs was kind of elite attitude and, and expectations yeah. around the camp and I know the players speak about learning loads from her even though she didn't come in and score hat-trick after hat-trick they just more found her presence quite inspiring um, but I th- it was always a bit of a short-term move to suit both parties it was it was a good uh, it was a good thing for Spurs in terms of the, the buzz and the interaction from, from fans and things and it was um it was a good thing for her in terms of getting the opportunity to build up her fitness again. And now she's, she seems to be back, uh, back to her best now. Played well for the states against uh, against France in a, in, a, in, a, in a friendly in in April. So I think it served all parties quite well, even though she didn't really give us electric uh, goal frenzy that we might have hoped for. But that was always going to be really unlikely when you haven't played in so long. I suppose it was like she's on secondment from the U.S. women's national team, who. Yes, they won the World Cup, whoop, good for them. But after they'd won it, the chant wasn't USA, it was equal pay. Ada Hagerberg wasn't even at this World Cup. It is so shameful on so many levels that the, the people governing American soccer are not helping the cause. They're getting all this reflected glory. Pino is obviously a superstar beyond her on-pitch activities. She's kind of the Colin Kaepernick of the women's game. And yet there's something wrong with the sport in America, despite them being by far, because they started early and they allowed that generation to come. I mean, Brandy Chastain, Mia Hamm um, begat Carly Lloyd 
Megan Rapinoe, which begat some of these kids who are at Man United at the moment. So what would you do if you were advising um, the US Federation in terms of how they treat and reward their female stars? It's, it's, it's almost ridiculous because actually uh, if they were to have equal earnings over the course of the year, then it, that w- even that wouldn't be equal for the women's team because they, not only do they play a lot more matches than the men's national team, but they also have been far more successful. Um, goodness, you know, back-to-back world champions now, the current, the current crop. So it's a very, very uh, odd situation that, that, that even the world champions are still having to fight for, for equality. Um, I think what they did at the World Cup did a lot went really far in terms of uh, raising awareness of it around the world but I, we haven't really seen massive massive change yet from, from the, the people the powers that be at US Soccer um, but what we're actually seeing now is their league debt to break away from from the sort of slowly the transitioning in the next few years to break away from US Soccer with the league being quite a lot more independent and I think um, they see the future of women's soccer in, in America and um, as being more independently run by by women's focused uh, sports people rather than by by US soccer. I don't know how to describe uh, the team succinctly, but uh, I've never seen a more confident sports team. And I don't just mean the team themselves, but the fans and everything. I mean, it was. I, I believe followed, that we will win. Yeah, well, yeah, but I I was at their first press conference before their opening game against against Thailand uh, at the World Cup. And in the pre-match press conference, uh, one of my colleagues from the American press asked um, Jill Ellis, the head coach, a question about their hotel choice for the final. Um, and and that, I will never forget that because I, I know in the, if we'd even entertained that kind of English press, we would, people would have been so uh, nervous about coming across as uh, presumptuous or, or getting ahead of ourselves with our one-game-at-a-time mentality. And yeah, it seemed it seemed quite natural to both the media there and and the team there to discuss their, their plans and preparations for the entire tournament. And I've talked to colleagues who covered them and, and fans of the team as well. And I spoke to fans who had booked tickets for every game all the way through to the final. Of course, we'll, you know, of course, we'll be in the final. Of course, we're going to win. It's just a question of who we beat in the final. This is people I'm talking to before the first match. The record will show they were proved correct. Of course, you know when you do win, that's okay. But it was remarkable confidence, and um, I think that stems all the way through, even from whoever it was who asked um, Rapina the famous question, which was actually long, a long time before the World yeah. Cup, but it emerged during the World Cup, which was you know whether she would go to the to the White House when they won, and she obviously said what she said about not not going to the rude word White House, uh, the famous line. But yeah. you know that's another example of people talking about what will you do when you win a long time before. You've won. They've earned the right to be that confident because they're such a winning machine. Um, and there's no national team in the world quite like them at the moment. No, they um, are. Extraordinary yeah. They are the winningest. Uh, I can't believe I haven't mentioned Kieran Tyvum and Jeff Kasouf, whose book, The Making of the Women's World Cup, is a Bible uh, and it takes its place on the shelves of the football library. Kieran, probably the most famous Watford fan working in the women's game. Have you come across him? Kieran, uh, yeah, very dear friend. Um, uh, extremely nice man who, who was one of the, the most, I guess, uh, most, most trusted and, and, and most prominent women's football. Yeah, Woso Zone, women's soccer zone. For a long time and now, and now he's moved into a role uh, on the comp side of things at the Women's Super League, which is he's doing a brilliant job there. Um, and uh, yeah, that, uh, his book with Jeff. Jeff, I met at the World Cup as well. Another very nice gentleman. Um, that's in it. A really good read. I, uh, we were talking about the women's national team in America. That was actually one of the books that I, I was going to 
flag because the one I've been enjoying recently by Caitlin Murray, um, US author, is called The National Team, which is basically her inside story of the, the women's national team's history. And there are some great stories in there all the way back to when they were first forming their women's uh, national team in America, when women's national teams weren't particularly prominent. And there's, yeah, there's some, there's some great stories in there. That's one I really recommend because, um, yeah, particularly their 1999 World Cup win on home soil, winning the World Cup at the, the Rose Bowl in Pasadena in front of pretty much 100,000 people. We get caught up sometimes in this idea that women's football is, is, is grown in the last few years. Well, it was huge in 1999 over there. So, uh, yeah, that's a book I really highly recommend. Yeah, it's great. Uh, we seem to have taken some baby steps in this country because, no disrespect to Doncaster and the like, but women's, uh, before the men did it, the women's um, team would go on a trot around the country playing friendlies and internationals and it all led up to the FA who us who have besmirched their name by cancelling women's football for 50 years and are now furiously peddling you got the England Germany game at Wembley uh, in 2019 I, I imagine you were there with the mob of women's football writers uh, did it take your breath away seeing such a huge crowd watching women play football for their country and I'm sure Kaz Carney would have been very irritated that she wasn't there. Yeah, it was, I think what took my breath away was a reaction to Ellen White's goal because um, it's probably the loudest goal celebration I'd heard at a women's, uh, women's football game. And uh, yeah, that was a big moment. But obviously in England sadly lost the game um, with a late goal, which I guess put a little bit of a dampener on it. But I'm sure they'll be back once we're back. I guess the pandemic kind of interrupted the flow of things there yeah. a little bit, didn't it? But um, I think they'll be back uh, and only yesterday... I was at the press conference launch for the ticketing for the Women's Euros in this country um, next summer. And uh, their plans there are very ambitious. Obviously, they're all really hoping that the pandemic will be over by then, which is the, the main the main uh, determining factor. But they are essentially targeting full stadiums throughout the entire tournament. The two records that I think that they are likely to break are uh, in the opening match at Old Trafford. They, that, that is an opportunity to, to set a new record, first and foremost, for, for a Women's Euros turnout they, they would need to surpass about 41,000 so if they sell out Old Trafford they will smash that record and then and then at the final at Wembley they're hoping to set a record for the, the, the highest attendance for a women's football match across all of Europe mm-hmm. so again if you sell out Wembley that that would do so um, so um, and, and Wembley currently has that record from the 80,000 that watched the London 2012 gold medal match um, so those would be two quite significant landmarks and, and we saw at the last Euros around uh, 240,000 people attended the Euros in the Netherlands overall, which was a big improvement at the time. But they're now hoping that they'll have over 700,000 people um, at matches in the Women's Euros in England. So those are really big increases. But at the same time, there are also some people who are disappointed that they haven't got bigger stadiums. Um, The semi-finals, for example, will be at Milton Keynes, Dons, and at at Sheffield United. Probably nice, big, big stadiums, but I think there was a few people who are a little bit disappointed that there aren't slightly bigger stadiums for those. Yeah, but the geography teams. is there. Milton Keynes is very central and easy to get to from London and good for the Absolutely. tourists. And then Sheffield is Sheffield. Absolutely. All and the same. what they yeah, have done very well um, is uh, the cities have been paired together really quite sensibly logistically for the groups. So unlike in the French World Cup where teams were playing a group stage game in Nice and then going 750 miles up to La Havre and then back to back to the south of France again or going from Montpellier to Valenciennes and back and forth which is fast distances and bad for you as well oh yeah I suppose so but they've now paired it together very sensibly so 
for example, um, if you're in the group where you're playing in Milton Keynes, your other match, your other venue in that group is, is Brentford Stadium. Okay. Um, Brighton and Southampton have been paired together, and then uh, the four cities in the north: she- Sheffield, um, Rotherham, uh, Manchester City's Academy Stadium, and and, and Leeds Sports Village. They've also been paired paired together. So um, that's fairly sensible for the visiting teams, um, and I think. It, I think it has the potential to be to be a hugely successful tournament, yeah. And if you want to know more about the Lionesses, Carrie Dunn is your gal. We had her in the football library. She'd just come back from walking her dog um, when I spoke to her. And uh, we talked about the roar of the Lionesses, the pride of the Lionesses, and an unfinished third book, maybe the, the championship of the Lionesses. But Carrie's doing great things. Joe Curry at the BBC. She was your colleague, Joe. Uh, nowadays we just bump into each other at matches I suppose but yeah Joe's been uh, doing excellent work across all women's sports for a long time and uh, Carrie's books actually is what I would call proper writing as opposed to uh, my contributions to the women's football year but which is uh, which is which is a a book we're very proud of but it's more of a it's more more of an annual and focused on keeping a record of all the results and statistics in as much as we can so a huge amount of the book is is uh, is facts and figures, whereas uh, Carrie's books are, are, are what I would call real writing, proper proper writing, and, and uh, yeah, real insight and interviews and and, uh, and proper proper journalism that goes into those. Have you got a book in you of proper writing? Yeah, to, to, to write myself, uh, I hope so. Maybe in the future, but uh, I don't know how I can fit it in at the moment. Yeah. Um, for, for the time being, I've just uh, prioritised trying to. Trying to do as much as I can for my uh, for the Telegraph, but maybe yeah, in the future would be would be nice. But it takes um, takes a real skill and, and dedication, I think. And I, yeah, I've enjoyed helping Chris with the uh, women's football year, but which which I should stress, Chris has very much uh, led on. He is the, the the kind of uh, genius behind it, really. And I just help out a little bit here and there, along with, with Bethany Pritchard. But uh, it, yeah, maybe one day in the future would be really nice. But for the time being, the four the four yearbooks is. Uh, it's something that we're really proud of, and, and um, we would love to do more of them. I think. Because, when, well, are you uh, gathering material for the next one? Very much so, but I think waiting for the green light from publishers and that sort of thing, because one of the things that has been challenging, and Chris has worked tirelessly on to try and sort out, but it has been quite difficult to, to get the backing from from publishers. Yeah, that's uh, what he said. Which I guess is still a shame, but I know, I know other colleagues who cover women's sport have had similar battles. Um, with their attempts to write various books, um, and we were we were lucky to, to get the support in the end of, of first words worth with our first book and then, and then legends. But I know others have ended up going down the self publishing route. So I think we I think uh, uh, Chris is uh, working hard to try and find a, a sponsor. But it might be that it might be that yeah, the fifth year book would be very nice. But I think we're just we're kind of waiting to see now what the summer brings and seeing seeing whether there is the backing for it because. Um, I, I sense maybe publishers are more aligned towards those kind of uh, autobiographies or, or, or that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, we're doing whatever we can, hopefully. Cool, hopefully. Yeah. Fingers-, Fingers crossed and everything else. Uh, a couple of questions before I uh, give you back to Blake so you two can play. <laughs> you are pro yeah, a Women's World Club Cup, but anti-video assistance. Uh, had you yeah. spoken to Lee Alexander about video assistance and how unfun it is? I, I'm so relieved we don't have VAR in the Women's Super League at the moment. I can't stress that enough. I think uh, just sapping all of the, the enjoyment out of uh, of watching and celebrating goals at the moment. I, I completely understand. You know, it's important to 
eradicate some of the injustices, like such as the the, the Frank Lampard uh, non-goal against Germany. I walked out the pub. I just I walked out of the student union and said, "I'm sorry, I don't like this anymore." Because it was clearly yeah. a goal, and I could see it on the screen before the replay. I'm all for you know goal line technology and, and that sort of thing, but I just find the uh, yeah, I just I find it odd how how long the gap is between the those people celebrating and and then suddenly being told maybe minutes later, oh by the way, that wasn't a goal. I don't, I don't that's not for me. But we will inevitably see it in the women's game as as the and hopefully the women's game by the time it, it, it's rolled out properly in the women's game, it will have some of the teething problems will have been sorted out. Actually, quite. We saw at the Women's World Cup, actually, that the the women's game was almost sort of treated like a little bit of a guinea pig when it came to that penalties rule with the VAR, where they were they were looking forensically to see whether a goalkeeper's toe had stretched off the line before they saved a penalty. And we saw dozens of, well, not dozens, but quite a lot of, of uh, penalties re- retaken. Uh, and I think everyone was getting a bit exasperated. I think Nikita Paris would have wished some of hers had been retaken. Sure, but I, uh, and, and the most significant one was Scotland, uh, uh, where the Argentina striker had a, a second attempt at, at knocking the Scots out. I guess the women's game's quite fortunate now that they're, they're going through the, the improvement phases, shall we say, of the VAR processes in the Premier League in the men's game, and then the women's game maybe will hopefully pick it up once they've figured out the best ways to roll out in, in practice. Um, and as for the, the FIFA World Cup Cup, yeah, I... Um, I find the men's version of the the Club World Cup uh, just a bit boring because it's so predictable that so frequently the European team is a winner. Uh, it's almost like a parade sometimes for, for Real Madrid or whoever's won the Champions League. Whereas the a women's version, which in ex- for inexplicable reasons doesn't exist yet, would actually be competitive because I think most people would agree that the strongest, the strongest proper teams in the world come from America. Uh, so for a start, we might have a winner from a, from a different continent, which is always helpful for a global competition. I think the, the chance of seeing the top American teams going up against the best European teams for the first time, together with the strong teams we have in Japan, and, and the Australian League as well is really strong as well. Yeah. And I know there's now professional leagues in South America as well. Yeah, I think the neutrals really want to see a North Carolina Courage or Portland Thorns going up against Chelsea, Lyon, Barcelona and, and Melbourne. That would be a tournament that, that would actually be unpredictable, and, and so it's, for me, it's a no-brainer that, that that needs to be introduced as soon as as soon as possible. The challenges of the calendar, because uh, the calendar is not quite as aligned uh, in the women's game as it is in men's football, but uh, there's got to be a way to resolve these things, surely. Yes, indeed. Uh, this England Germany game, uh, I'm not going to test you on the eleven, but the eleven was Erps, Bronze, Horton, Williamson, Greenwood, Scott, Walsh, Nobbs, Paris, White, Mead. Coming off the bench, Taylor, Stanway, Daly and Hemp. Um, among the substitutes, Beth England, Ellie Roebuck, Lucy Staniforth, Abby McManus, Demi Stokes, Millie Bright, Carly Telford. Who will start England's first game at the Euro next year? Who would have started if it were this year? England's strongest eleven at the moment, I would say, is probably Ellie Roebuck in goal. That England-Germany game that you mentioned, I think, is actually Mary Earps' last appearance for England and she's been quite strangely overlooked since then which I do find a bit odd but England's number one now is clearly Ellie Roebuck and I think she'll be the number one for a long time so yeah, she'll start in goal brilliant. yeah she, and one, one of this crop of players who've come goalkeepers now who've come through with full-time training all through their their young their time in the academies and, and as a player so and that's something that England goalkeepers haven't really had before so yeah she's brilliant um, yeah Lucy Bronze uh, would, would start at right back and that's that she's one of the only players England can 
have where we can say categorically that's the best player in their position in the world. So that's a, she's a, a guaranteed starter. And yeah, Steph Horton as captain would would start as centre half, probably alongside Millie Bright. Although Leah Williamson and uh, and Lotta Ruben Moy are proving to be really strong ball playing centre halves at Arsenal. So they might they might look uh, to one of those. But yeah, I would be going Bronze Horton and then. Bright so far, and then at left back you're looking at Alex Greenwood, who's had a really good season at Manchester City. And what Greenwood offers you as well is that flexibility to tuck into a centre back role if needed and, and play Demi Stokes. But then uh, in midfield, well, we are seeing a bit of a change now because I sense that Jill Scott, who's been an incredible England servant, 150 odd caps. Uh, I imagine now by next summer, I'm not convinced she'll be starting. Um, if the tournament was this, was this summer, I think she would start Jill, but can see the midfield probably being uh, Kira Walsh in the holding role, Jordan Nobbs, and I would envisage actually maybe Georgia Stanway in front of in front of them. Stanway was seeing in deeper roles for England. So that would be my midfield three with some sort of combination of, of Kirby, Ellen White and Lauren Hemp up front. But I should, the front three, you really could go with any, you could go with all sorts of different combinations because we've got Nikita Paris, we've got Chloe Kelly who's unfortunately now injured but Lauren James coming through we mentioned earlier. I've still got Tony Duggan who's got something to offer and Beth Mead. We won't be able to pick all of those those attacking options. Beth England as well, goodness, haven't been mentioned her but now that, so yeah, that was a slow answer so let's run me through it, <laughs> run me through it again. Right, I'd go Roebuck in goal, Bronze, Horton, Bright and Greenwood and then Walsh, Nobbs and, and Stanway in midfield with uh, Kirby, White and, and Hemp up front but I, the options of Kelly off the bench and uh, and I, I, England have actually frequently used uh, Frank Kirby in a deeper midfield role which I think is a slight waste but it wouldn't be a surprise if Frank Kirby was dropped into like a deeper 10 position and then you could fit Chloe Kelly, Lauren Hemp and, and Man City the three Man City strikers uh, up front so that would be my team but that would inevitably change before next summer because we're seeing the likes of Lauren James come through and they've now got a seat to try and, to try and um, establish themselves and, and pick that have a starting position and you will be best positioned to comment on who is likely to be hashtag on the plane um we are talking on may the 20th which uh finds you tom gary in self-isolation you've um come back from sweden i'm not going to talk too much about the game but it was just depressing to see the game over so quickly but of course um here's a fun fact Chelsea conceded four goals in that game. How many goals had they conceded as they wrapped up the WSL title? Uh, ten, I think. Ten. Possibly. City conceded, City conceded 13, Arsenal conceded 15, and they all, all scored between 60 and 70 goals. So they seem to be the top three, and they're attracting great foreign talent. I saw Arsenal when um, the chap before Montemuro was in charge. I wish I could remember his name. Pedro Martinez-Losa. Yossa, yeah. yes. Uh, and I've seen Man City play and I've seen Chelsea play. Uh, Ellie Roebuck once made the most amazing save uh, for City and I thought she's she's a superstar. Um, Chelsea, Millie Bright is, has a mistake in her. Maybe she's improved over the last few years. We don't start a Champions League final without improving. And then you've got the influence of, of the foreign brigade at Man City coming in and teaching... Uh, the locals a thing or two. Aesthetically, who do you like watching the most out of Chelsea, City and Arsenal? And if it's Chelsea, do you think that Emma can add one or two players to the squad to perhaps win the domestic treble in December? In terms of the aesthetic 
style of football to watch. It, it has to be Arsenal, but for them, that doesn't actually lend to them being the most successful because they're not because they are always trying to play that that same style. Um, they, I guess, they've been undone sometimes in in some of the bigger games, but. Um, if you wanted to, if you if you were a neutral and you were going to find where could you find the most entertaining, free flowing passing football on the floor, I would recommend Arsenal every every, every day, um, and you pretty much guaranteed goals with the bizarrely rare exception of their nil nil draw with us and on the, on the last game of the season. But clearly, the, the strongest side overall is Chelsea. Uh, they're, ta- they're tactically the most the most um, mature and, and aware, and and they can change, they can adapt to a game. Like no other team in the league, that you know, if things are going a certain way, they will either from instructions from Emma Hayes on the side or just for the players themselves, they have the intelligence to adapt. Unless they're 4 0 down. Unless they're 4 0 down. I think the final was a, a strange exception because I, I've never seen them play like that before, to be honest with you, in the last sort of six, seven years of my career. But um, there were some players who were, def- were clearly nervous with the first big final they've been involved in, the, you know, and there were some young, yeah, the youngsters at fullback, particularly, who have done well in recent weeks. Stepping in at fullback, but uh, me and Charles and Jess Carter, I thought, were just a little bit out of their depth. In the sense, they were up against two of the best wingers in the world, and Lika Martins and, and Caroline Graham Hansen. So it was a difficult night for them. They'll learn from it, and they'll definitely get better. But it was uh, it was ever shell shock, Chelsea, and they're not used to falling down like that for four nil after thirty odd minutes. But um, in terms of, I think your question was where will Chelsea need to strengthen now? Um, I I think they will look to strengthen at the back because it's the only real area where you would find weakness in depth. They, their actual starting first choice back four is extremely strong but we saw them having Marimielda get injured in the League Cup final and they've really missed her she's extremely reliable right back and I, I, I think it would have been a very different final if Marimielda had fit uh, up against Lika Martins because we wouldn't have seen Barcelona um, tormenting them down that flank as we did in, the, in reality they also need to I would think add, add another person who could start the centre-half because when, when the captain Magdalena Eriksson picked up an injury and missed a couple of games against uh, Man City and the first thing against, Bar- uh, against Bayern Munich Chelsea looked really quite vulnerable without her organisational skills and, and Millie Bright um, who alongside Eriksson has, has looked uh, unflappable without Eriksson Millie Bright looked quite nervy so um, they really miss Eriksson so it's, I guess it's in the same way that we've seen the strongest men's sides look vulnerable without their best defender Van Dijk at and Liverpool, for example, Chelsea don't look the same without Magdalene Eriksson. So I think they will, they will now spend the summer bolstering their defensive ranks so that if they do miss a player like Eriksson or Mielder, again, that, they, that they're not quite so uh, adversely impacted because whoever can step in sure. is of a similar, similar level. The FA Cup final is in December. Tonight you'll be watching Chelsea against Everton. Um, I hope there's no hangover after the weekend. Maybe they'll be buoyed by your exclusive that Emma Hayes has got a new contract. Um, have you met Emma's son, by the way? Does she bring him along? Uh, I've, I've not met him, but we've seen him on a couple of the, uh, the video calls and we saw his, uh, his, his tactics board fun that he'd been having on, on the taxi board behind Emma Hayes in one of her pre-final press conferences. Uh-huh. And uh, I think what we have seen is a real change in, in Emma Hayes since becoming a mother. And the players say that as well. And they, they, they say they, they, they loved her beforehand, but I think they love her even more uh, in, since that, that, that uh, change in her life. Um, no, not met him. No, that's your question. No, I've not met him. But uh, I heard great things about, about the kind of fun he brings to the, to the camp when he's there. Uh, the WSL 2021-22 season 
uh, will kick off, according to uh, what I've just looked at, in September with uh, 12 teams. Birmingham are among them. Will you be at the opening game? And if so, uh, it'll probably be in Manchester. It'll be either City or United. Yeah, I guess I'll I'll go wherever the opening game may be. We don't know the fixture this yet, but uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll be there at the opening game, wherever that might be. Next season will be quite different because of the, the... the fixtures are changing. We're looking at most likely seeing a Friday night slot, a Friday 6.30pm kickoff being quite a regular thing. We're looking at a Saturday morning 11.30 kickoff also becoming a regular thing, as well as the Sunday games as well. So it wouldn't be surprised if the opener might be on a Friday night. Um, I will put that in the calendar. I'll try and... Yeah, uh, possibly. That's a new TV schedule thing they're going for to try and, to try and boost... Uh, boost the audience and find times that were suitable for young people as well as times that didn't clash with Premier League football on Sky. Yeah, and is, will that be on BBC Two or the Red Button? What's not been confirmed yet is which channels have got diff- the different TV slots. My instinct is that the Saturday morning 11.30 slot is the one set for Sky Sports um, on a regular basis prior to them showing Saturday football but uh, I, I'm not 100% sure we're still waiting for a few more details to come through from, from either unofficial sources and, and, and official sources yeah. on which which slots will go to which which broadcaster but I think that will actually might end up rotating around because sometimes we see live Premier League football on a Friday night and sometimes we don't mm. so I think um, they will pick the Friday nights when, when they'll get the most exposure Well Kieran if you're listening uh, Tom is expecting a message <laughs> from you at some point in the next few weeks. Um, have a wonderful summer. Good luck with the move. Um, where in Manchester are you living? Uh, thank you very much. I'm not sure yet. We're going to be looking around uh, once the season comes to to an end. But uh, in fact, we're going to get married first. Hopefully, we'll touch wood on the 1st of, uh, of, of June. Oh, Mazatov. Uh, uh, yeah, it's about a year uh, a year later than originally planned, as, as with millions of other couples who were hoping to get married last, last May um, and had to, to change it all. But yeah. Uh, looking forward to that. Looking forward to uh, hopefully a nice, a nice break, and then we will, yeah, we'll search in June, and then and then um, move, move in, I think late July. I think my, my half starts. So yeah, really looking forward to, to that new new chapter. And um, no, thanks very much for chatting to me. It's a real, real pleasure. Like a light, 